You can stay standing for just one moment as we uh, read the scripture for today, which comes out of Mark chapter 8. Uh, we'll be reading verses uh, 27 to 38. And so we uh, I invite you to read this uh, or to listen alongside me as I read it and we hear the word uh, of the Lord. And Jesus went with his disciples on, on, uh, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with the disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with the holy angels. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, what a blessing it is uh, to hear your words, to hear Jesus teaching his disciples. God, we come uh, humbly before you, pleading uh, that we would be able to receive this same teaching. God, as we look to Jesus, not just uh, as a teacher, but as our Savior, God, we know that apart from your work, we would never be able to follow what He has uh, taught us today. So God, come and move in our hearts and draw us to You. In Christ's name, amen. We are uh, getting very close now to Christmas. And um, as we do, many of you are probably uh, watching a lot of Christmas movies, reading Christmas stories, and maybe one of the most famous is Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Uh, I think that one is famous for a number of reasons. The most the, the, the reason the, the reason I think it's famous the, the most important reason I guess is that uh, we can all relate to this character that Dr. Seuss invented the Grinch right many of the, all, all of us know a Grinch many of you are Grinches when it comes to Christmas and Christmas songs and Christmas traditions I had some hand raised back there yeah you you know a Grinch maybe you are a Grinch that is such a a memorable character that we can so many of us can connect to that we remember that story. But I think there's also another reason why the Grinch's, that while that story that Dr. Seuss wrote is so, uh, why we remember it, it gets you know, retold over and over and over again. And that's the, the meaning, the moral of that whole story. It get, that, that moral kind of gets drawn out a little bit more in the, the movie version that has uh, Jim Carrey as the Grinch. In that version of the Grinch story, Cindy Lou Who is on this mission all the way through that movie to figure out what's the, what's the meaning of Christmas. You see it all the way through the movie. She's on this search. The whole, the whole town is, is, uh, is all about the, the Christmas presents and the wrapping and the, all the different activities, and they're so busy. But this little six-year-old girl is like, is this really what it's all about? 
Dr. Seuss in the, the original book, and I think almost every production or, or you know video movie version of the Grinch I've seen, they always quote the, the moral of the story that Dr. Seuss wrote at the end. And it's this. It says, And the Grinch, with his Grinch feet ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without packages, boxes, or bags. And he puzzled and puzzled till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. What if Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store? What if Christmas perhaps means a little bit more? Right? We, Downtown Fountain Inn has part of that quote uh, on the wall. What if Christmas means a little something more? It, it is good and, and healthy to wrestle with the meaning of Christmas, what it's all about. Christmas is such a, a cultural phenomenon, right? Even non-Christians have taken on this holiday and celebrated to such a big degree that as Christians, we, it's good for us to stop and say, wait, do I, am I really celebrating the right thing? Am I focused on what really matters most? Or am I getting lost in, in what else is going on? And I think similarly, there's also a chance that we could miss an even more foundational message than the meaning of Christmas. I think that even more or even beyond missing the point of Christmas, it's also very possible that we could miss Christ himself. That we could, even in this season with everything going on, even in a, in a, in a part of the world where there are plenty of churches, it is easy, I think, not just possible, but easy to completely miss Christ altogether. And in doing so, I think we also miss what it means to be a Christian so I think it's possible for people watching online, people gathered in this room, people on this stage, I guess that's just me right now, to, to miss Christmas, to miss Christ, and to miss what it means to be a Christian. In the Gospel of Mark, as we've followed along, that's one thing the disciples have shown us over and over again. You couldn't be any closer to Jesus than the disciples were, and yet time and time again they missed Christ. They missed the message right in front of them. All along, Jesus has been showing us through the first eight chapters in Mark who He really is. Because He doesn't want us to miss it. He doesn't want us to miss who He is. All along, with as He's been telling us who He is, He's also been giving us a, a, a challenge and an invitation along with the disciples to follow Him, to understand who He is and begin to follow Him. He said that, in the very beginning, in Mark 1.17, he says to the first disciples, Come, follow me. And so here, at the end of this first half in Mark 8, the end of this sermon series we've been going through, the beginning and the end of this series, he says the same thing. He, he's inviting these disciples. And he's talking about somebody that, that's one of his followers. He says in verse 34, Take up his cross and follow me. That's why we've titled this series, Follow Me, because that's really what it's all about. Knowing who Jesus is, and following Him. This is Christmas week. It's a good time for us, to, for us to ponder the meaning of Christmas. But it's also a good time for us to ponder who Christ is and what it really means to be a Christian. We can go through life and miss that altogether. We can be so close and yet completely miss Him. We are so close. We're, what, five days away? My, my kids would give me a hard time for not knowing that because there's a little countdown thing on the, on the, on the, on the counter. Every day they change it. You know? So we're so close to Christmas, and yet we could miss it. We, we can be so close to Jesus. We're worshiping together. We're, we're, we're 
here. We're singing about Him. We're reading about Him. We're, we're talking about Him. We could be so close. And I think we could still miss Him altogether. Jesus was walking with His disciples one day, and He asked a very interesting question. He said, who, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Jesus was, was priming the pump. He was getting them ready and getting them warmed up for that day's lesson. And so the disciples, you know, respond with answers they had heard, I guess, you know, kind of around town. And as they went, uh, some people were saying that Jesus was another John the Baptist or uh, a reappearance of the prophet Elijah. Uh, others were saying he was a, a new kind of prophet. And so that's what they responded None of those are negative things. Those are positive things, but none of them is quite right either. It doesn't fully capture who Jesus is. If Jesus asked that question today of, of our world, who, who do people say that I am? What kind of answers would, would we give Him? We asked around, if you kind of saw uh, you know, the general population around us, who, who would they say Jesus is? Well, probably similar to the way that the people around the disciples said. We, many people around uh, our world today respect Jesus' teachings. They think He's a good moral teacher. He said some pretty good things that, that people generally like. And so they'll say, well, He's a good teacher. Maybe they'll mainly talk about Jesus says, hey, He was all about love and not judging others. That's to be the primary thing they remember about Jesus. Maybe some people think of Jesus mainly as a prophet. Some of the major world religions think of Him that way, like Islam and Judaism. They'll, they'll say, yeah, Jesus was a prophet. Or even a, a popular movement in our, today is, in our world today is to be spiritual without being Christian, right? So they'll think of Jesus as maybe the very top of a list of good spiritual guiding people, people that lead us and direct us, you know? So none of those are negative, but they never, they don't capture who He really is in His essence. So then the, Jesus turns to His disciples and asks them directly, it's verse 29, but who do you say that I am? He asked about people in general. Who do people say that I am? And then he turns to the disciples, these guys that have been following him around, and they say, but you, who do you say that I am? Surely this is the most important question for all of us to answer in life. If, if we don't answer that question correctly, we, we miss everything else. Who do you say that I am? Not, not just people out there, not just the world, not just your parents, not just your neighbor, not just your friends, not just your Sunday school teacher or your pastor, not just the people around you or the way you grew up, but you. Who do you say that I am? It's always easier to let somebody else go first on big questions, right? I'm not going to raise my hand because I might get it wrong. I'll let, I'll let somebody else answer and then I'll, I'll follow them. But Jesus is asking all of us that individually. Who, who do you say that I am? This moment in chapter 8 in Mark, where the Mark really splits evenly in two, two even sections here, first half, second half. This, this is the climax of the first half of Mark's gospel. All up to this point, Jesus has been answering this question, who he is. And in this moment, it finally, finally comes out. He, he finally declares it through Peter, uses Peter's answer here to declare his true identity. But really, this has been the, what he's, the case he's been building all the way through the gospel. He has shown his, his power to heal the sick and the blind and the lame and the deaf. He has shown his power over nature as he calmed the storm and walked on water. 
He has shown His power over spiritual forces as He cast out demons. He has shown His miraculous and and powerful teachings. And He has shown His miracles to, to feed the multitudes. He has defied and rejected the religious people, the Pharisees. He defied and rejected the political people, the the Herodians that were following Herod's way. And he turned and he showed compassion to a world in need, to those who were hungry, those who were desperate. And he loved them and cared for them. Mark has shown us over and over again who Jesus is and Peter got it. Peter, Peter has picked up on it, at least in part. Jesus asked, verse 29, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, You are the Christ. You are the Christ. Amen. That's who Jesus is. He is the Christ. And perhaps you think, well, of course. I mean, this is, we're Christians. This is, we celebrate Christmas. Jesus Christ. That goes together, right? They're supposed to be in there. But we, we sometimes think of Christ as just Jesus' last name. You know, your name, think of your first and last name. We think of Jesus Christ. But Christ wasn't his last name. Christ is closer to a title than it was to a last name. Christ in the Old Testament, or Christ, it means anointed. And the way that's used most often in the Old Testament is about a king. Kings were anointed. This is a special position given by God that somebody would be anointed as the king. But also all the way through the Old Testament, they talked about one who would be anointed as a king above kings. A king over all kings. This Messiah, this Christ, this anointed one would rule and reign over all governments and all kingdoms and all government, all, all thrones. He, he would rule over it all. And so when, when Peter says, you are the Christ, that's what he's talking about. He's telling us Jesus is the king. If I just tell you Jesus is the Christ, you say, well, yeah, of course, but make sure you know what this means. This is the king. Jesus is the king. He's the one that we have been waiting on. He is the one that is in charge over all things. All his miracles, all his teaching, his compassion, all of it was to show that first group of of people around him and show us today who he is. He is the king. There is none like him. There has never been anyone like him. There will never be anyone like him. He is the king above all kings. And that's good to know because you and I need to be able to answer that question. Who do you say that I am? Our answer is, He is the Christ. He is the King. And of course, Jesus wants more than for us just to be able to answer that like it's a trivia question, right? The point isn't just being able to get the question right on a test. The point is when we say Christ, Jesus is the King, Jesus is the Christ, we're not just giving answer, we're, we're pledging allegiance. We're saying this is the most important thing in the universe. There is one king over all, and we're pledging full allegiance to him. The call to Jesus as the Christ, the king, is a call to submit ourselves to him, to say he is in charge fully and completely. It means that whatever he says goes. We are not a a check and balances with him. We're not his sounding board. We're not his board of directors that gives approval to his actions, right? He is the king. We are not. And we submit to Him. To call Jesus the Christ is to say fully and completely, once and for all, you are in charge, Jesus, and I am not. We're saying He is the King, and I am not the King. Which is also to say that no one and nothing else is the King. Right? Because it may be one thing for us to say, I'm not the King, 
But it's also another thing to say, I'm not going to worship anything else as king. The rest of the world lifts up all kinds of other things and people for us to try to elevate to the status of, I follow you above everything else. Whether it be a political leader, a church leader, a celebrity, an activity, a hobby, a job, a family member, a financial goal, a habit, an addiction. We can lift anything everything in the world and say, this is what I'm following above all else. And the message of Christmas, the message that Jesus had in Mark 8, that Peter answered, when we say, you are the Christ, Jesus, we're saying, you're the king. I'm not and nothing else is. There is one king and one ruler over all. When Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? We are right to pledge our allegiance and say, you are the Christ. You are the king. Peter got the right answer. He knew in part at least what the answer was, but we'll see pretty quickly. He didn't fully understand that. He quickly showed he didn't fully know what Jesus meant by that. Because you see, Peter, like any of us would, associated kings with thrones, right? Kings are the ones that are in charge. They are the ones that have already won the battles. They have already stepped over the the, the potential obstacles and they have taken their seat on the throne. They are in charge and they call the shots. And so Peter, as you know, one of the 12 inner circle and maybe even closer than that as one of the the good guys, he thinks, well, this is great. I know the king. I'm the king's right-hand man. This is going to be good for me. You are the Christ. And he was excited about where that was going to take him until Jesus continued teaching, right? He says in verse 31, Jesus does, it says, or it says about him, it says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, it's a reference to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days, rise again. Whoa, 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 wait a second. I thought we were talking about the king. I thought we were talking about the guy in charge. And now Jesus is talking about death? I, how does this line up? Now, you, you may be, you're, you're in church, you're, you're watching online, you're watching a church service on your, on, on your own free time. You, you may know a little bit about Jesus' story. That may not sound weird to you that Jesus is talking about the end of his life, that he's going to die and then be resurrected. But back yourself up to Peter's shoes for, that, for a moment. Right? He, just, he just got the right answer. This is the king. And now Jesus is talking about death at the hands of some other rulers? That's quite a bit backwards. And add on top of that, he just called himself the son of man. Now that's a, a, a phrase that maybe we don't think much about. But you may notice in your, your English translation of the Bible, that is a cap, that's capitalized. Son of man. This is an official title. That's a reference back to Daniel chapter 7 where Daniel has this incredible vision. And it says this, And I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. You see, for Peter, who who knew the scriptures, for all the Jewish people who knew the Old Testament, they had an idea of one who would come and he would reign and he would rule over all. He was one like the son of man, but he was divine. He was this special king. But then Jesus is putting together two things that had never been put together. He said, I'm the son of man and I must suffer. A suffering son of man. And that's where Peter gets confused. He had never connected that before and Peter's kind of upset about what this may mean. And so then Peter does something pretty crazy. He takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. Talk about boldness. 
Peter, Peter got maybe a little puffed up by getting the right answer. And he felt like he had some, some authority that he got to tell Jesus what to do. Just so you hear how, how strong of a word that is, that word rebuke is the same thing that Jesus has done to demons earlier in Mark. Jesus rebuked demons. Now Peter is rebuking Jesus. That's not a good idea, in case you're curious. That's not what it means for him to be the king and him to be in charge. You see, Jesus uh, was teaching Peter something that we all need to hear and we all need to be reminded of, and that's this. Jesus, the king, went to a cross before he went to a throne. Jesus went to a cross before he went to the throne. We associate kings with thrones, and rightfully so, and Jesus did go there, but on the way, Jesus the king went to a cross. Jesus was the first one, uh, he, he was the first king to do it this way. Peter, like every other Jewish person, associated the Messiah, the Christ, with a king and one who would come and overthrow the, the Roman rule to, to bring the Jewish people out of captivity and to, to, to overthrow this kingdom and to once again rule like they did during King David's time. So when Jesus said he was going to die, it didn't, it didn't make sense to Peter. He didn't understand how this could add up. But Jesus was saying he's doing something a lot bigger than just giving one group of people, one, one nation, of some freedom for a few decades, right? He had his eyes set on a much bigger task, a much bigger mission than just that. More than just liberating one group of people from a political oppression for a few decades, Jesus came to set all sinners free for eternity, that is a much bigger goal. And because of that, it required a very different path, a very different mission. So now it was Jesus' turn to turn and rebuke Peter for his confusion. Jesus rebuked Peter for thinking of a throne without knowing it needed to go through a cross. Jesus rebuked Peter for trying to just get political gain, to just get his own way and to achieve what he wanted without understanding what, it really, uh, what the greater mission was. Jesus doesn't beat around the bush. He, he calls setting his mind on, on things of man. He tells him he's setting his mind on things of man instead of things of God. It even goes so far as to say that he was thinking like, like Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. That's an even stronger rebuke. You see, for Peter, he was trying to grab power instead of humbly submitting to the will of God. What, what, what do we want more in this world? Do we want power and prestige? Or are we willing to follow God, whatever that may mean? That's the dilemma Peter was in. Jesus didn't come make a temporary grab at power by trying to climb some ladder, climb, climb up on some authority around him. He's, he's come and he comes humbly. He came to a manger. He came to a cross. He says the Son of Man must suffer, not because anybody was making him, but because this was God's plan all along. You see, sin entered the world not by God's fault, but by our fault. And yet God, from the beginning, made a plan that He would be the one that would take on our sin. And so He said, the Son of Man must suffer. It has to be this way. This is the only way salvation can come. If Christ comes and He takes it on Himself. God had a plan from the beginning that He would come and He would save us. Jesus knew the right path to true glory. And He would get there. He says in verse 31, after three days He would rise again. He predicted His own resurrection. But the disciples, they didn't have a category for that. They, they couldn't understand how that was even possible. So they seemed to miss that altogether. 
But this, this is the gospel. This is the path of the gospel. It's not that we climb up. It's that we go down. Jesus went, into, went up on the cross to go down into a grave so that he could ascend to be with the Father. The, the, the shape of the gospel is a V-shape. We go down in order to go up. The rest of the world wants to just climb higher and higher and higher. But Jesus was willing to go down as far as anybody else had ever go, gone. Jesus went into the grave to pay for our sins so that ultimately he would be uh, celebrated as he ascended back to the Father. That's what Christ the King came to do. And if we're going to be Christians, people named for that Christ, then that's what we're called to do as well. I mentioned already we called this series Follow Me after Mark 1.17 and Mark 8.34 because here Jesus begins to explain what that really means to follow Him. In chapter 1, He had said, follow me, and you saw there the disciples dropped their nets. They dropped everything. To be a disciple means to leave everything behind and say, I'm, I'm focused solely on you, Jesus. But when we get to Mark chapter 8, we realize that being a disciple means more than just dropping something, dropping our nets. He says, if you're going to be my disciple, yes, you drop your nets, but then you pick up your cross and follow him. Being a disciple requires both, leaving everything in this world for the sake of his kingdom and being willing to follow him no matter the cost. That's what we learn in Mark chapter 8. And here's the call to us today. Follow Jesus the King to the cross. Follow Jesus the King to the cross to the cross. Jesus was on his way to the cross. And from this point forward in Mark's gospel, he has got a laser focus on Jerusalem and on the cross. And the disciples were learning pretty quickly now that if he's going there, they might too. It might cost them something now to follow Jesus. Not just that they left behind their towns, not just they left behind everything, but it may, they may actually have to suffer now for following him. Now, there's, there's some obvious differences between Jesus' suffering and ours. Jesus' suffering was what paid for our sins. We don't pay for our sins with our suffering. Instead, our suffering is a way that we are participating in His mission. We are carrying the kingdom forward. We are following His path and seeing the way His kingdom works. So even though it's a different kind of suffering, it is still suffering. And so He says, take up your cross and follow Me. That's another phrase that if you've been around the church, that may sound normal. That may sound, you know, Christian, but try to hear that like the first people would have heard that. Jesus is talking about a form of execution. So if Jesus today would say, take up your electric chair and follow me. Take up your lethal injection and follow me. Except for it was much worse than that because the Roman world was much less, you know, humane, if you can call any form of execution humane. But this was like the most inhumane form of execution. When Jesus was talking about a cross, it wasn't just execution. It was you had been publicly and officially condemned and opposed by the Roman world. This wasn't just a, a, a mob thing. This was officially declared by the system as a criminal. You are officially uh, facing opposition. And more than that, more than just uh, to be declared that way, the, the cross was a form of public humiliation. It was done naked. This was meant to be just a total embarrassment of this person. It was meant to be humiliating and destroying. And then this form of death was not quick. It was slow. It was suffering. It, it required 
It led to suffocation. It was ugly. It was gruesome. And eventually it then led to death. So opposition, uh, humiliation, suffering, death, those are the kind of things that come to mind when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. That's what he was telling those first disciples. And that's what he's telling us. That's a pretty hard pitch to sell, if we're honest. If you're, if you're into sales and you want people to follow you, this isn't a great strategy. <laughs> this isn't going to motivate people to say, all right, I'm up for that, you know. Because deep in us, we crave all the opposites of that, don't we? We don't want to be rejected. We want to be accepted. We don't want to be humiliated. We want to be approved of and praised. We, we want the very opposite of those things. We, we don't want suffering. We want comfort. We, we want things to be safe. We don't want death. We want to preserve our life at all costs. So why, why in the world would Jesus say it this way? It's because He's showing us the shape of the gospel. You see people that try to climb up just straight to approval and comfort and safety and things being easy, they never really get it. But people who are like Christ willing to go down, those are the ones who are ultimately raised up. To be a Christian, to be a Christ follower, is to follow Jesus to the cross. Here's what he says in verse 35, For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. Sure, we could spend our, our whole lives trying to preserve ourselves, trying to, to make things comfortable and easy and simple and, and just like we like it. And he's saying in the end, you're going you're gonna to lose it all. He says in verse 36, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? If we chase all the things of this world, the cost we pay for it is the cost of our soul. If we try to preserve our life, Ultimately, we are giving our life away, and we're throwing it away forever, not just temporarily. Jesus here is naming some of the the most deadly idols of our world because they don't seem like bad things. They're not inherently evil things. In fact, we'll see these are ultimately eternal things that God's going to reward us with. But if we pursue them directly, we're, we're missing the greater point of God Himself. Some of us chase after material possessions of this world. God has given us good gifts, but if we make that the ultimate thing, the thing we chase after more and more, it leaves us empty. It leaves us void. We we have nothing. Our soul is lost in the process. Some people seek satisfaction and and joy from from comfort and safety. We think, if I, I don't have to be the richest guy, but as long as we can just live comfortably, as long as I can protect my family, and look after these people, then then I'm good. I'm good as long as I have comfort and safety. Some people strive after the approval of others. We just got to get people to like us, and then we'll be okay. As long as the crowd's happy, then, then we're happy. Those are all human ways of trying to save our lives. And Jesus is saying, if you chase up, you'll never get there. You got to go down in order to come up. He's telling us the truth. None of those things can save our lives. Whoever would, try to, whoever would try to save his life will lose it. But whoever's willing to lose his life for his sake, for Jesus' sake, and for the Gospels, that's where we find it. The way to eternal security, eternal happiness, eternal joy is living not for ourselves, but living for Him and living for others. The way to walking with... The way... The way to eternal life is walking with Jesus. And that's a path 
that leads outside the city and up into a hill with a cross. You see, in our kind of Western world, American world, we, we are so averse, adverse to, to suffering. We, we, we think uh, suffering, we're like basically allergic to suffering, right? Anything bad that happens, we think that this can't be good. This can't be, nothing good can come here because it hurts, right? And yet over and over again in the Bible, we see the way that God moves powerfully in the hard things in life. That it's on the way down that we get closer to Him. It's the more that we give away, the more we serve, the more we love others, that's the closer we walk with Him. If we chase comfort, safety, material gain, approval of men, we'd lose it all. We lose it all. But if we're willing to follow Him, yes, it's going to be costly. It's not going to be easy. It's a narrow way. But it leads to life. It leads to life. And the only way to gain happiness, joy, security, ultimate satisfaction is to give all those things away for the sake of His glory, going down in order to come up. The world has tried to teach us that all suffering is bad, but Jesus, the Bible tells us, many times that's where He moves the most, is when we're willing to go through something hard. Jesus' message is that He went to a cross for us. The worst moment in all of human history becomes the greatest good in all of human history. It's so backwards, so upside down from the way that we think, and yet it's the pathway of the gospel. Follow Jesus to the cross, because He's the King, and that's where we find joy. Imagine a world where, where people, where, where nobody lived for themselves. Imagine a world where everybody lived for God's glory and the good of others above themselves. That, that's essentially heaven, right? Where everybody lived that way. And until we get there, when we live for the sake of others, when we live for God's kingdom and God's glory, it's going to hurt in this world. But we know that for eternity, it will bring, bring great satisfaction. Ultimately, Jesus is not saying that you're going to live, the, the way to live forever and ever and ever is just to be steamrolled. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that when you give your life away in this earth, when you live for something greater, you're ultimately going to have joy in the, life's to come, in the life to come. David Livingstone was a, a missionary. He was born in 1813. It's a long time ago. And he spent most of his life uh, throughout all the, the continent of Africa uh, opening up doorways as a missionary to, to, to bring the gospel in so many parts of Africa. And he spoke to a group of students in Cambridge, 1857. And this is what he said. He said, For my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office, the office of, of being a missionary. He said, people talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward and a healthy activity, the consciousness of doing good and peace of mind and a bright hope of glorious destiny? Away from the world in such a view with such a thought is emphatically no sacrifice. I say rather it is a privilege Yes, there is anxiety, sickness, suffering, danger now and then, maybe with the foregoing of the, the, uh, the common charities of this life. It may make us pause, and we may have a time where our soul sinks, but it's only for a moment. All these things are nothing compared with the glory which shall be revealed to us and for us. I have never made a sacrifice. Here's a man who spent his entire life away from his family, away from his home, away from the comforts of this world, 
And he says, it was indeed no sacrifice at all compared to the glory of knowing Christ forever. That's the shape of the gospel. Giving it all away for the sake of an eternity with him. Christmas is so often this time where we're, we're consumed with material things, consumed with the stuff of this world. And in and of themselves, the gifts, the comfort, these are not bad things. But if we, if we make them ultimate things, they're idols that leave our, lead our lives away from Christ. So as we focus on Christmas and what it really means to be a Christian, don't forget that Christ went to a cross before He went to a throne. It's truly more blessed to give than receive. And as we've studied through the Gospel of Mark and we've seen Jesus up close and personal, I hope now more than ever you see Him for who He is. He is Christ. He is the King. He is worth everything. And in following Him, we will find true joy, true everlasting life. If we'll follow Him to a cross. Let's pray. God, it's a blessing to know you and to be known by you. God, there are so many times where we chase after things that don't ultimately matter. We chase after things that are not worth chasing after. God, we focus on things of this world instead of focusing on you. And so, Lord, as we approach a major holiday and celebrating Christmas here, May our focus all the more be on Christ, on what you've done for us. God, we we recognize that our hearts are tempted to focus on everything else other than you. And so, Lord, we pray, God, we plead that you would show us who you truly are, the Savior of the world, the most beautiful, magnificent Savior of the world. And God, may our hearts be so enthralled so thrilled with you, God, that we would lay our lives down and find joy and peace and comfort, not in the things of this world, but in walking with you day by day. God, this week when we have opportunities to put ourselves first, God, may we instead seek you and your kingdom and the good of others so we may continue to walk with you on this path that leads to a cross. I'm going to give you just a moment if you're joining us online or here in person. Just to process what, it, what, what Christ may be speaking to you today. The same Jesus who went to the cross is the same one who came to a manger. And he's the same one who came out of a grave. And he's the same one who sent the Holy Spirit to be with us now, to dwell in your hearts. And so he's the same one who can speak to you today. Maybe for the first time, or maybe in a new way, that he, he wants you to lay your life down to follow Him. Listen to His voice today. Maybe you want to come to the altar or come pray with me. Or grab a friend, grab a neighbor and pray with them. Or there in your living room, if you're watching at home, to pray with a family member. And say, what, is it, what does it mean for us to follow Jesus to the cross? Lord, we need you. We desperately need you. Teach us to follow you, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.